Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the spookiest podcast this side of the Appalachians. I'm Sam. And I'm MK, and welcome to the third episode of East Coast Haunts. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty, we've just got a few little points of business to go over with you guys first. First off, I'm sure you guys noticed we got a new mic, so hopefully the sound quality is improving a little bit. And you don't have to turn your phone to the highest volume to hear us. (laughs) And we're not as gritty. But now... We're on Google Podcasts, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts, in addition to all the old platforms as well. Please leave us reviews on these platforms, especially on Apple Podcasts. It's just a way to boost our views and our listeners, and it's a great way for you guys to tell us what we're doing good and what we can improve on. So please take advantage of that feature. Also, our Patreon is live. And if you guys don't know what Patreon is, it's a way for you to subscribe to our podcast for a small monthly fee and get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes content, merch when we get a little bit of a bigger following. And um, we have three different tiers for however much you would like to contribute. So if you feel so inclined, check that out. It's on our website. Recommend us to a friend. That's a free way for us to really grow our base. And we've got plenty more episodes soon. We're not stopping anytime. We're not going anywhere. Exactly. So without further ado, let's get into the history and the haunting of number 92 Second Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, also known as the Lizzie Borden House. Dun, dun, dun. Now, this house was the site of the most gruesome murders in the 19th century. Um, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard the little tune that goes, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. It's a classic nursery rhyme. I actually was talking to my dad about this case, and he said that as kids, they used to jump rope to that song. Really? Because I had never heard it until I was researching this case. I had heard it, but I think it was because I had watched a couple of documentaries okay, on yeah. the case. It's so funny. I guess I guess in like our parents' era, it was more of a thing. I don't know. I, it was apparently popular back then. Huh. He's not the only person that said that to me. Interesting. Well, I guess that makes sense because it is probably one of the most well-known murder cases in... American history? Is that dumb to say or is that? No, that's completely accurate. It's been haunting people for well over a hundred years at this point. And it's technically unsolved, I think, right? Technically it is unsolved. There's a lot of theories, (laughs) um, which we'll get into in a little bit, but I just want to kick us off by saying that my main source for all the historical information was a book by two FBI mind hunters John Douglas and Mark Olshaker, and it's called The Cases That Haunt Us. And if I could recommend this book to you a hundred times over, I would. It's absolutely incredible. The way that they discuss the case is perfect, and it kept me hooked from beginning to end. I really liked how they talked about the different subjects and they used psychology to rule some of them out. And we'll go into a little bit of that at the end. But again, The Cases That Haunt Us, and it's not only just the Lizzie Borden case. It's a couple of other cases like the John Bonet Ramsey case, the Black Dahlia, um, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, so things like that. And I just want to start with a quote from this book, and I feel like it very much sums up the case 
and it goes like this, quote, could a demure, well-mannered, and well-to-do former Sunday school teacher, active in her church and charities, and a prominent member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union actually be a monster, end quote. So I'm going to get into some of the details of the case, and I'm going to let you guys decide for yourselves. All right, let's get into it. I'm so curious. Right now, I'm, I'm neutral. I don't know where I stand on if I think Lizzie did it or not. So I'll let you convince me either way. I'll tell you my opinion on who did it changed during my research. Oh, okay. So first, let me introduce you to the members of the Borden household. We'll start off with the patriarch, Andrew Jackson Borden, who was 70 years old at the time of the murders. Was he like named after yeah. President Andrew Jackson? I would think so. <laughs> Interesting. What a horrible president to be named <laughs> after. Know, right? <laughs> Ooh. So already starting with kind of a rough, rough, rough hand. go at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was a businessman and he was respected in Fall River, which is the Massachusetts town that this all occurred in. He was related to one of the founding families of Fall River, but he was a second cousin, so he didn't benefit from the wealth that had been passed down through three different generations at this point. But he had clout. He made because he was, his own fortune. Oh, okay. Andrew and he Jackson also had a little Jr. bit of clout from like the family name. Okay, right. That makes sense. Um, so he began as a casket maker and an undertaker. It's kind of ironic. Yeah. He was extremely frugal, and that was one of his, like, very defining characteristics. Okay, a Scrooge guy. I was just about to say, he kind of reminds me of Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, He used to mutilate corpses to fit them into smaller caskets to save money on a few inches of square wood. Okay, so that, that's a like, step up from Ebenezer, though. That's, like, a little bit. He's mutilating corpses? Yeah, he would, like, cut their feet off <gasps> or, like, the top of their heads off oh, just to God. save, like, a few inches. Wow. Okay. But that being said, he did evolve into a prominent figure with many titles, not just Undertaker. He was president of Union Savings Bank, of which he was also an investor, he was the director of Merchants Manufacturing Company, the director of BMC Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company, the director of Global Yarn Mills, the director of Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufacturing, and in addition to that, he owned several farms and plots of land. Dear Lord, he was quite the Renaissance man. He How did he even have time? Jack of all I trades. don't understand. <laughs> jack of all trades, master of none. Interesting. Okay. So then, using his wealth, he built the A.J. Borden building in Fall River as a testament to this wealth that he had amassed. Did he name the building after yes, himself? Yes, he did. That's cringe. A little bit vain. Um, Andrew was here to get the bag and not to make friends. Okay. And he was super prominent but not popular at all. He was known for having no sense of humor, but that being said, he was a respected man no one really wanted to cross him. Almost like feared, it sounds like. Exactly. Okay. So naturally, he did have a few enemies. Of course, yeah. And that'll come into play later. But at the time of his death, he was worth a half a million dollars, which in today's money is almost $10 million. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of debate as to whether he was frugal or if he was just the cheapskate of all cheapskates. He forwent certain quote-unquote luxuries, things that we would think of today as basic amenities that were becoming common at the time to have in any type of household, like of any type of income. Okay. So there was no electricity, 
and there was no indoor plumbing. There was one water closet down in the basement, which was just kind of like a sink. Okay. And in lieu of bathrooms, they had slop pails that had to be Mm. emptied every day. Immediately, no. He was a cheapskate. Yes. Slop pails? Yes. So they would do their business, and then the poor maid would have to empty them. Yeah. And he was worth $10 million when he died. Okay. And they lived down where people of a lower class would live. Okay. And that was always a point of contention between him and his two daughters, Emma Lenora Borden, who was 41 years old at the time of the murders, and then Lizzie Andrew Borden, who was 32 years old at the time. Her of middle the name morning. was Andrew. Yes, it's I think <laughs> he likes a, to name himself after lots of things. It was a common thing back then, I think, okay. for the second daughter to take their <gasps> dad's so name my, as their middle name. My middle name would be Peter. Yes. <laughs> luckily you weren't born in the 19th century um they did have a third sister who was born in between the two that died in infancy but both daughters were spinsters they were unmarried and they still lived with their father at home and so neither of them really fit into the social scene all that well they kind of stuck to a routine of going to like work which was at the school church and then coming home And they both blamed their father's frugalness for their social outcast lifestyle because they thought that since he forego those type of amenities, it made them kind of like a target. It put a target on their back. There has to be more to the story, though. I mean, yeah, you probably will get bullied if you have like a slop pail in the basement. But here, hold on, listen. Okay. So his frugalness was a point of contention between him and the two daughters because both of the daughters wanted to live up on the hill, which was the richer side of Fall River. Okay. And that was where all the prominent figures in society okay. at that time lived. So knowing that they had this fortune and still lived down on 2nd Street, which is where the people of the lower class lived, mm-hmm. also put a target on their back. So it's not just not having indoor plumbing. It's also the fact that he refused to act like he was part of this higher social class. Which sounds like some sort of motive for murder, if you ask me. You would think so. But anyway, so the lack of amenities grew into resentment for their father. But regardless, Lizzie loved her father. And that's a point that's not often talked about when discussing this case. And Lizzie was one of the things that her father was okay spending money on. She was actually a little bit spoiled when it came to like luxuries and gifts and stuff. I've never heard this. I feel like when I hear the stories, it makes it seem like she was like, had to act like she was like destitute and like deprived. Yeah. That's what shocked me about this. But no, he treated her to exotic furs in specific, a seal skin cape that's going to come in a little bit later in the case. I know, kind of gross. Um, European trips, he bought her a trip around Europe for her 30th birthday. Wow. And he was billed for anything that Lizzie stole from in town because she was kind of a known kleptomaniac. Okay. This is And he was okay with it. He never told her to stop, so she just kept taking little things and then the pharmacist or store owner would be like, oh, well, Lizzie's at it again. And they just bill Andrew. And he Ew, was like, so okay. entitled. It's like, also, girl, you're 32 years old. Like, girl, I up. know. It's not cute at all. <laughs> but he also wore her high school ring every day as a sign of her undying love for him. 
Mm, I can't tell if that's like sweet or like low key creepy. I don't know either. Right? I at first I was like, that's kind of a sweet sentiment, and then I was like, mm. considering what happens later, I'm just I don't know. I, th- there's got to be something else going on. With we this know now. Yeah. It could be a little bit creepy. This family, like, there is something weird going on. Exactly. <laughs> So that being said, Lizzie was more outgoing and more active in the community than Emma, her sister. Her life was centered around the church, and she taught Sunday school classes to the children of immigrants. She was an active member in the Christian Endeavor, Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission, Women's Christian Temperance Movement, and the Good Samaritan Charity Hospital. She despised chores, but she volunteered to cook dinner for the church's annual dinner for newsboys. Okay. The next inhabitant of the Borden household is Abby Durfee Gray Borden. And she was, I know. Um, She was 64 years old at the time of the murders. She was Andrew's second wife and Emma and Lizzie's stepmother. Their real mother, Sarah Anthony Morse Borden, which is, again, she took her father's first name as her middle name oh okay okay now i see what you mean so she the real mother had passed in 1862 and andrew remarried in 1864 so this man was really wasting no time okay yeah he was like on to the next one and that kind of led to a little bit of tension between the daughters and the stepmothers unsurprising she was abrasive she was known for having a sort of like snippy personality and would make kind of not sarcastic comments, Backhanded but like, comments. exactly, okay. to people, and, and so she wasn't super well-liked. Well, it sounds like she and Andrew deserved each other. They sound yeah. like, they seem very similar. Yeah. It was a match made in heaven. <laughs> and the daughters thought that they, that she just wanted their father's money, so okay. they didn't really like her. I can, I can see where they're coming from. The tension worsened when Abby's sister fell on hard times in 1887 and Andrew granted her use of a rental property that he owned. And the daughters became extremely jealous and confronted him and they wanted to know why they hadn't received any rental properties or anything of his because they're blood and Abby's not even blood. Yeah, Abby's sister, like their stepmom's sister received It's a little bit far removed. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I understand why they were a little upset. I do too. But apparently it was sort of like a tantrum. So it wasn't an articulate like, hey, dad. Well, this is also coming from the girl that would like steal things and then her dad would pay them back. So obviously she's very entitled. And she was known for having a belligerent temper. Okay, good to know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But Andrew indulged this temper and gave them their childhood home as a rental property for a single dollar. All right. (laughs) This didn't last long, though, because they didn't want to deal with the upkeep of the property. So they sold it back to Andrew for what some estimate to be two and a half times what the property was actually worth. So I think the original house was worth like maybe two thousand dollars. And they sold it back to him for like five thousand dollars. That reminds me of like when Trump was like a small loan of a million dollars. So they're they're kind of like leeching off their dad. Exactly. Bit. Not that they had any other means of making money, but well, yeah. I mean, this is the 19th century. Yeah. Women couldn't exactly do whatever they wanted. But this incident is what led to Lizzie calling Abby Mrs. Borden instead of mother <laughs> or stepmother. That's really funny. It's, it's like. <laughs> kind of petty isn't it yes 
That's so funny. And this is kind of a trend with Lizzie. Like she doesn't call people that she doesn't respect by their like actual names. Okay. And you'll see this. You'll see what I'm talking about in a second. Okay. But she openly, like publicly disliked Abby. Okay. And would correct people who called her her mother and say, no, that's my stepmom. Okay. Interesting. I mean, so far it's like not anything crazy out of the ordinary. Like I'm sure there are lots of kids. It just kind of seems like a dysfunctional household. And it also seems like Lizzie should be like 15 or 16 the way she's acting, but she's 31. I didn't know she was this old. 32. I didn't know that she was this old until I started researching the case. I always thought she was like 18 or 19. It's like embarrassing. It is a little bit. Let's act our age, sweetie. (laughs) (laughs) Like, especially at this point, like your dad is providing- to be an adult at like 16, 17 years old. you're popping out babies at like 12. (laughs) Like, like, girl, come on. That That might have been a slight exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. The last permanent member of the Borden household was Bridget Sullivan. She was 26 years old and she was an Irish immigrant maid who had been with the family for two years. That's a super Irish name. (laughs) Bridget Sullivan. Lizzie and Emma referred to her as Maggie, though. And that was the name of their previous maid and they didn't bother to learn her name. I have to say, Lizzie and Emma, I do... Ew, I don't like them. I don't either. They're so entitled. Also... Emma, excuse me, girl, you're 40 years old. Why are you acting like you're, like, 12? I'm sorry. They're just annoying me. I know. Even if they didn't kill, spoiler alert, even if they didn't kill their dad and stepmom, I still don't know if they're necessarily good people. They're just, like, (laughs) it makes you think that maybe the reason that they were social outcasts wasn't the fact that they didn't have electricity and plumbing. Uh, Maybe it was because... Maybe it was their personalities. (laughs) Imagine that. <laughs> no, it couldn't be. It, could, it had to be the slop pail. <laughs> That's what's driving people away. <laughs> That's why they're not married. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> At the time of the murders, there was an overnight guest staying with them, and his name was John Vinicum Morse. He was 59 years old, and he was the brother of Andrew's late wife, Sarah. Okay. So he was the girl's real mother, brother okay so they're blood related to him it's their uncle their blood uncle yeah their bluncle (laughs) (laughs) he had previously lived in iowa but had moved to south dartmouth which is about 17 miles from fall river about two years before the murders he arrived on the afternoon of august 3rd and he pretty much dropped his bag said hi to the families and then dipped and visited one of andrew's farms and then kind of just a weird detail, he brought back the family's like egg order, okay. which was typically delivered. So that's just like one thing that's like out of the ordinary that people were like, hey, why is okay. that? that? That's a little bit weird. Okay. Yeah, that is weird. Later that night when he returned, he discussed business details with Andrew. And no one knows to this day what they were discussing. But there's okay. a lot of speculation around this meeting. So it's thought that maybe Andrew could have been drafting a new will or revising his previous will, which could have been a motive. Um, It could have been about a failing business venture of John's that Andrew wouldn't invest in. Or it's also thought that the girls might have implored John to talk to Andrew about Abby and his lending of the rental property to her sister. Okay, so they wanted John to almost be like the go-between to like talk to Andrew exactly. and be like, why kind did of like he do a this? Mediator, okay. Yes. okay, that makes sense. Um, then, 
it's kind of important because there's a lot of really weird things that happen on the days leading up to the murders. Okay. First off, two days before the murders, August 2nd, Abby and Andrew both fall violently ill. And this part is going to kind of get a little bit gross. So if you have emetophobia, maybe skip ahead. Emetophobia. What is it? No, I was just repeating what I you said. It, I think it's emetophobia. What is it? Like fear of It's fear of Okay. Yeah. Okay. Trigger warning! <laughs> <laughs> but they're continuously vomiting. Like, oh God. Okay. Yeah, gross. Bridget had some of the same symptoms and Lizzie, quote unquote, felt queasy. Okay. But showed no physical signs of illness. Okay. Interesting. Emma is not home at the time. She's away visiting friends in Fairhaven, which is about 15 miles away. Okay. Um, the morning of August 3rd, Abby pulls herself out of bed and uh, goes down to visit Dr. Seabury Bowen across the street. And she tells him her symptoms and confides in him that she fears that the family is being poisoned by one of Andrew's business enemies. Oh. Isn't that kind of a weird thing to say, though? Yes, very weird. If you got the stomach bug, would your first thought be, hey, I'm being poisoned? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> that would not be my first thought at all. Especially back then when I feel like food poisoning was probably fairly common. It was. And I'm going to touch on that in a second. Okay. But it's also kind of weird to note that Lizzie had also told a close friend named Alice Russell, and she's going to pop back up in a little bit. Okay. That she feared that her father's business enemies would retaliate and perhaps poison the family. Well, Mm. she thought their milk was being poisoned. Okay. But also this could be... Lizzie could be saying this to people, like, putting, like, a little earworm, like, oh, I hope we don't get poisoned by my, by the enemies of my father, like, well, to, that's, yeah, okay, yeah. interesting, interesting, good to know, that's and this kind is of two days before they died? Yes. Okay. Um, when Abby visits Dr. Bowen, he asks what she had eaten recently, and the accounts vary as to what exactly it was, it was either something called warmed over fish, or mutton stew. Those both sound absolutely repulsive. I'm pretty sure mutton is like the stomach of a sheep too, which is like... Why did I think it was a type of bird? I'm pretty sure it's the stomach of a sheep. That is vile. <laughs> that is absolutely vile. <laughs> and it gets worse because the Borden family was known to eat a very mutton-rich diet. Okay, yeah, so why are we acting like we're surprised that they're spinsters? These know. girls be... Choking down mutton like it's, <laughs> I don't even know, water. Throwing back the back the mutton. back the mutton like it's no one else's business. And here's the kicker, though. This is so gross. Oh, is that no. Bridget knew that the food was well past its expiration date. Like, it was smelling funky. Oh, no. And Andrew refused to let her, quote, unquote, waste the rotten food. So the family, instead of throwing away, ate the food. Okay, Andrew is ridiculous. I'm, I know. There's a point where it's like, okay, I can see maybe, you know, foregoing a couple of luxuries. I still think everyone should have access to indoor plumbing. But like, um, maybe if he was like, oh, I don't want to live up on the hill and spend yeah. that extra however much money. But don't force money. everyone to eat rotten food. That it's horrible. That's what I'm saying. And Ew. so then the doctor obviously is like, okay. So obviously that's the case. That's and what he here. like laughs off the account and tells her to stop eating the rotten food and sends Abby home. Which I honestly don't even blame him because I'd be like, obviously. Well, what do you do? You're a doctor yeah. and this is 
people are coming to you and be like, I oh, my stomach is upset, but I've been eating rotten mutton stew. I'd be like, mm, let's put two and two together, <laughs> sweetie. But yeah, <laughs> seriously. Those brain cells. <laughs> okay, gross. So that brings us to August 4th, 1892, which is the day of the murders. Okay. And interestingly enough, there's a very precise timeline of events that okay. goes on today. Wow. I'm surprised because I feel like so long ago, it's like... They kept an impeccable written record of this day. Okay. Down to like a few minutes. Okay, weird. So around 8 a.m., John, Abby, and Andrew eat breakfast together. So those are the two parents and Uncle John. Okay. Lizzie didn't join them, but this was common. She often avoided eating with the family, and it's thought that it was to avoid Abby. Okay. At around 8.40 a.m., John leaves, and this is part of his alibi, to look at oxen for sale and visit relatives named the Emery family nearby. So the uncle is gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Allegedly. <laughs> at 8.40 a.m. Okay. And the Emery family can corroborate the alibi from 9.40 a.m. to 11.20 a.m. So that's the time that he got there and the time that he started heading home. Okay. Abby tells Bridget to wash the indoor and outdoor windows. And most at this point, most of the family members are on the mend, so they're like kind of still queasy, but the, maybe the vomiting can cease. Okay. Um, but Bridget was still like severely ill. Okay. So at 9 o'clock a.m., Bridget rushes to the backyard and vomits. Okay. And it's like gross. Uh, <laughs> but it's like it goes on for a little bit. Okay. And then she later chats with a neighboring maid through the fence in the backyard and this is confirmed by the neighboring maid in between her projectile vomiting exactly this family man um i have to imagine that that conversation (laughs) went something like that bitch abby is making me clean these windows (laughs) i just ate sheep stomach and i'm gonna throw it up forcing me to eat rotten mutton stew as i'm throwing up this bitch is making me clean windows i would move back to ireland i think i don't understand what bridget sees in in this family i don't either um but anyway at around 9 10 a.m Andrew leaves to complete his business rounds, and this is corroborated by neighbors who saw him leaving. And at this time, Bridget is in the backyard. Abby is upstairs making the guest room up from when Uncle John stayed there. Okay. And this is typically a task that would have been given to Lizzie. Like, it's not kind of like a lady of the house type task. But Lizzie possibly refused or threw a tantrum, and Abby didn't feel like doing this. (laughs) She just did it herself. Okay. 9.15 to 9.20 a.m., Bridget returns inside and hears Abby and Lizzie conversing in the dining room. And now is kind of a good time to go into the layout of the house. And just to help you guys visualize it, it's already up on Instagram, a picture from the cases that haunt us of the layout of the attic, the cellar, and the first and second floors of the Borden house because it's actually a little bit confusing. Um, It's a weird house. There's no hallways. So rooms just kind of open directly onto one another. Okay. But the first floor, there's a front entryway and a side entryway. And if you enter through the front entryway, the sitting room is straight ahead. The parlor's on your left. The dining room is to the left of the sitting room. And the kitchen is straight through the sitting room. Okay. 
there's three staircases. One goes down to the cellar, and the cellar is mostly storage, laundry, and then that water closet that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then two go upstairs, and there's one staircase that leads directly from the front entryway upstairs onto a second floor landing. So you wouldn't have to go into the first floor at all from the... You no, just you go just, get in. You could and... just go right up the stairs. Okay. And then there's a second staircase that's towards the back of the house that goes directly up to Abby and Andrew's room and then up, up okay. to the attic. Okay. And so on the second floor is where Lizzie, Emma, the guest, and the master bedrooms are all connected. And from Lizzie's room, one could enter Emma's bedroom, the master bedroom, and the guest bedrooms. But the door from Lizzie's bedroom to the master de- bedroom was nailed shut. Okay, I'm and sure that was Lizzie's no doing. no accounts of, like, why that okay. was done. I'm sure it was Lizzie's yeah. doing as well. <laughs> um, Lizzie's bedroom is massive when you compare it to Emma's. Really? It's just a weird thing to note. Okay, yes. especially because Emma's the older sister, so you would exactly. think by default she would get the bigger and room. And Lizzie's room is, like, the same size as the master bedroom. Okay. Spoiled brat. Obviously, she's yes. the favorite. Yeah. Um, you can access Lizzie's room and the guest room from a second floor landing, which is what that first staircase leads up to. Bridget's room was in the attic, and it was sort of the ser- servants' quarters, um, and she could access that using the back staircase, which she typically did use. Okay. So there was no need for her to go through the landing on the second floor. She could just get directly up from the first floor to her bedroom. Okay, got it. A little note about all the doors in the house. All conjoining doors were locked every day from within the house by Andrew. And that's the result of a prior robbery in which $50 and some of Abby's jewelry was taken. Okay. But absolutely nothing else was disturbed. Okay. And like I said before, this house has a weird layout and it's almost like the thief knew the layout of the house. Interesting. Okay. Andrew would leave the key to all the doors, like a master key, on the mantle. And people think that it was probably like a message to the thief if he suspected Lizzie. Okay, so it was thought, okay. Well, she was a kleptomaniac, you said. Yes. It was kind of like, I know what you've done. I dare you to do it again. You know what I'm saying? Okay, yeah. Andrew also called off the investigation into the robbery because people think that he was dealing with it internally. Okay, okay. Getting sus. Yes. 10.40 a.m., Andrew, who's still on his business round, tells an associate that he's not feeling well and he arrives home around this time. Okay. The side door was locked and deadbolted, which was the entrance that he typically used, so he was kind of like, hmm, that's weird. Okay. Then the front door was also locked and deadbolted from the inside, and that's Really, really unusual. Okay. Yes. So Bridget heard Andrew struggling with the lock and she went to go let him in. But since the lock was not typically in use, she struggled with getting it open and she heard Lizzie laughing at her from the second floor landing. Okay. And that's going to be an important detail. Okay. I'll file it away. Andrew enters carrying a small white package and no one has any idea what was in that. Okay. Um, he dropped it in the master bedroom using the back staircase, and then he asked where his wife was. And Lizzie said, Mrs. Borden received a note from a sick friend and went to go pay her a visit. Okay. No note has ever been found. 
Okay, and but Abby had never told Bridget about a sick friend or going out. Abby was still feeling unwell, and there's no indication of her ever leaving the house. Okay, so very likely that Lizzie lied about this sick note from a friend. It's, yeah, I, okay. I would think so. So Andrew doesn't see anything weird about that, because I don't think Bridget voiced her concerns to him. So he retires to the sitting room to take a nap, and Bridget moves from cleaning the sitting room windows to the dining room windows, where Lizzie was ironing handkerchiefs. And just casual conversation between the two of them. She let Bridget know that there was a dress sale in town. And she was like, hey, if you want to take off early and check out that dress sale, I've heard there's some nice stuff down there. (laughs) And Bridget's like, oh, thanks. um, But I'm still really not feeling good. So I don't think I'm going to go. Okay. And Lizzie says that even if she does go, Make sure to lock the door. And Bridget thought that was weird. Okay, yeah. At around 11 a.m., Bridget goes to take a nap in the attic, and she uses the back staircase. She knows the time because as soon as she laid down, she heard the church bells from in town. Okay. Strike 11. That's very 1800s of her. Yes. She begins to doze off, and she hears a scream. And it's Lizzie screaming, and she says, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Someone has come in and killed him. She's still calling her Maggie at this point? She's still calling her Maggie. Okay. But then also, how weird is it to be like, my father's dead. Someone has come in and killed 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 him. him. Would you not just be like, someone killed him? Or or just say, he's dead. He's dead. I don't think all this context. Like, if you're yelling up the stairs, you're going to keep that as short and brief as possible, right? Or like, just come downstairs. Like, there's something you need to see, you know? Someone's come in and killed him. Yeah, that's Yeah, suspicious. that's a little weird. But I'm not going to hold it against her, because in a panic, who knows, knows how you would react? I would yeah. say, you know? True. Fair enough. Um, they discover Andrew's body on the couch in the sitting room. His feet were still on the floor, and his body was slumped onto the cushions. Lizzie then instructs Bridget to go get Dr. Bowen. This is when Mrs. Churchill, who's a neighbor who was the one that actually corroborated Andrew's time that he left the house that morning, sees Bridget running back from the doctor with Alice Russell, who's Lizzie's best friend. Okay. Um, She also goes to find the doctor at Lizzie's request because Dr. Bowen was initially not home and she didn't want to use the Irish doctor down the street for whatever reason. Okay. So Lizzie stays in the house alone. Well, Mrs. Churchill and Bridget both go to find the doctor. Okay. It's a little bit weird. Wait, I'm confused what Alice Russell is doing. Is she also looking for the doctor? She's just, you know. Yes, I think at this point she is, yes. But she's just kind of like, oh no, something happened at my best friend's house. I should go. Check it out. Yeah. Okay. But the fact that Lizzie stayed home alone when there's the potential for this murderer to still be in the house. A huge potential. The last thing you, I would ever want to do is stay in that is house stay alone. in that house yeah alone okay so obviously yeah. but so she's in there completely alone yes interesting and upon interrogation lizzie's initial story is as follows she was out in the barn looking for lead to make fishing line weights for an upcoming trip this is a little bit weird because lizzie hadn't fished in five years although she did maintain that she had a passion okay. for it <laughs> and she did have an upcoming trip okay but Police investigated the loft of the barn, and they found a layer of dust that was completely undisturbed. Okay, so if she had actually gone in there, she would have 
Yes. Disturb the dust. Okay. But according to Lizzie, on her way back in, she noticed the screen door was now open, and that's when she found the body in the sitting room. Okay. And the Fall River Police Department was busy working on a huge case at the time. Okay. This was kind of took a back seat. I'm totally kidding. They were at their annual clam bake in Rhode Island. Oh! <laughs> I was like, oh my god, like, what is the other one? <laughs> so they send, they send a new officer to investigate this case. Aw. Isn't that He's like horrible? the intern. They're like, yes, you. We're that's gonna... exactly what it is. It's like hazing. No, they're like, we're going to finish our clam bake. You can go look at the axe murderers down the road. <laughs> So finally, Dr. Bowen arrives, and he finds Andrew in the sitting room, and he notes that it's kind of weird that his only his head was attacked, and the body was completely untouched. Really? Mm-hmm. Not a single axe mark to anywhere below his head. Really? Mm-hmm. So he had been hit with an axe in the face, just oh, the face. Spoiler alert. Head. Yes, that is okay. how they were killed. All right. Um, so this brings about the question, where is Mrs. Borden? Lizzie brings up the supposed note from a sick friend and Bridget chimes in and she says that the only friend that she could ever possibly suppose that Abby would go visit is her half-sister, Sarah Whitehead, who lived kind of nearby, but Abby's super shy and is still not feeling well. Okay. So Bridget, who wants to get the hell out of this house, and who can blame her, volunteers to go pay a visit to Sarah Whitehead to see if Abby's there. Okay. Lizzie says, oh no, Bridget, I think I heard her come in. Why don't you go upstairs and see? Okay. And Bridget says no. Good. Setting boundaries. Setting boundaries with her employer. not. Yeah. So Mrs. Churchill offers to go upstairs with Bridget. And from the second floor landing, so before they even completely get up the stairs, they can see Mrs. Borden's feet in the guest bedroom and from underneath the bed they can see like a little bit of blood oh god okay so they run downstairs screaming which understandable an appropriate reaction for this this is weird though and here's why it's weird abby was a compulsive eater which i don't know what she was gorging on if not mutton mutton stew but (laughs) listen can't get enough (laughs) She was less than five foot one, and she was over 200 pounds. Okay. So she was, like, a larger woman. If she had fallen during whoever was attacking her, she would have shaken this house because it's it's, it's an old house. Century. Yeah, it's, it's an old like house. Yeah. If you've ever lived in an old house, you know you can hear flimsy, absolutely super anything. Yeah. So... You would think that if she had fallen, it would have at least alerted Lizzie, if not Bridget. And also. that's also if she hadn't... Because we, we know that Andrew was sleeping, so it makes sense that he didn't scream or anything. Yeah. But if Mrs. Borden was upstairs, like, in the guest room doing whatever, I'm sure she would have screamed. So not only would you hear her... I don't know if she had time to scream. That's okay. the thing. But... Yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you. Falling definitely would have alerted someone. Okay. So... After finding these two bodies, there was an autopsy performed in the Borden's dining room. Okay. Which interesting. I could never eat there again. Couldn't eat. Couldn't choke down the mutton anymore. Nope. 
So the first thing that authorities did wrong is they covered bodies with a sheet, which can mess with forensic evidence. Okay. It's more so something that you see in like crime TV shows yeah. than an actual practice. Okay. Interesting. Um, so this is already not off to an auspicious start. Not at all. But they compared the temperatures of the bodies because that's what they did back then. And they came to the conclusion that Mrs. Borden died at least one hour before Andrew. So Andrew died around 11 a.m. and Abby died around 9.30 a.m. How, do we know how accurate, like, is this fairly accurate? It's fairly accurate because of Bridget's testament that she heard Abby and Lizzie talking in the dining room at around, like, 9.20. Okay, wow. Interesting. I always assumed that Andrew had died first for some reason. No. And that's the weird thing is that it wasn't a frenzied killing. That killer had to have lied, laid, laid. That killer had to have laid in wait in the house, hidden somewhere. And like I said, there's not a whole lot of places that you can hide in this house. Waited for Andrew to come back and then killed him separately and made his escape. So they would have had to have been there for 90 minutes waiting in between the murders. Weird. But also, it is important to note that there is a reason why it's important that Abby died first. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Andrew had been hacked 11 times with some kind of sharp instrument. Oh, God. And at this point, they're thinking it's a hatchet. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to spoil it. No, it's okay. (laughs) I would have spoiled it. No, it's okay. Um, The fatal blow was at the front of the face, so it's assumed that he was asleep at the time because he would have had to have been facing his killer. Oh gosh, okay. Abby had been hacked 18 to 19 times, depending on the account, and the fatal blow was at the side of her face, so they thought that she was turning to face her killer. So she heard the killer come up behind oh. her, turn to see who Ew, it was. Ew, that is so freaky. Yeah. In both cases, though, the first blow would have been more than enough to kill them. Okay, so it was... So, the continued hacking is severe overkill, overkill, which suggests a personal connection to the victims. Interesting. It's very Mindhunter of you. <laughs> it is. I love that show. And, I mean, I told you where I got my sources exactly. from. Um, then the person that was performing the autopsy cut off and tied off the stomachs and sent them to a lab for investigation. And that's kind of important. They, why would they cut out their stomachs? Oh, what? To test for poison. Interesting. Okay. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were buried on August 6th, 1892, but they were later exhumed, and that was not a popular practice at all back then. Yeah, it was, like, scandalous, right? Yes. Um, their heads were removed for evidence, and the skin was boiled off for evidence. Oh, my God! I know, I know. And then <laughs> there's kind of, like, this urban legend that um, – Andrew's head went missing. Okay. But it's not true. Okay. Their heads were reburied with them, but for whatever reason, they didn't think there was a need to place their heads back, you know, on their necks. So they just buried the heads at the feet of these people. There are so many like weird things going on. I know. Just also, gets, how do they even it gets know? Even how, weirder. It how gets do they even, even know? How do they even know? Like, what are their sources that they know that they're there was a head buried at the feet. That's just weird. It's just know. an account, I think. So weird. Maybe ground-penetrating radar. I have, I have no idea. They have. So now let's get into the murder weapon. Like I said, it was assumed to have been a hatchet. Okay. 
And Lizzie admitted initially that she knew that there were several hatchets in the house. And she later changed her story to say that she had no clue that there were any hatchets in the house. Okay. And Lizzie's story changes a lot. And there could be a possible reason for this, which we'll discuss in a few minutes. Okay. Four hatchets were found in the basement. Was it normal to have that many hatchets back then? I don't know. Like, that's a lot of hatchets. Yeah, but they they also lived on a farm. Okay. So I could see yeah, he had why like 12 there would businesses. be... Yeah, I could see why there would be need for multiple hatchets. Okay. So I'm not gonna... I'm not gonna hold that against them. But two of them were really of interest. One was covered in ashes. The police initially thought it was to cover something up. Okay. And the handle looked like it had recently been broken. Mmm... Interesting. One was found with dried blood and hair on it. Okay. But the blood and the hair were determined to be from a cow. Still weird. Why would you not wash that off? I know. Um, Very weird. And another hatchet was found years after the case on a nearby rooftop after a few kids had gotten like a ball or something stuck up on the rooftop. And that is the weapon that a lot of people think is the murder weapon. Oh, but, so was this one of, and so this wasn't one of the four ones found, this was found on a rooftop? On a rooftop. So they, and it was like right next door to that. Oh, wow. Okay. So they thought that maybe someone had come outside and just thrown, thrown a hatchet onto a roof and like, that stuck up there for Well, that, that was lucky years. for them then. Yeah. Um, it was also thought that maybe it wasn't a hatchet, but a butcher knife that made the wounds. Okay. And this is kind of um, a little bit biased towards a theory that's a lot of people's favorite, uh, that Uncle John Morse was the killer because he was a butcher. Okay, but, but there was, there's no definitive proof that it was definitely no. a butcher knife. It's widely accepted that it was a hatchet. Okay, okay, got it. But speaking of Uncle John Morse, he returned to the house at around noon and he's milling about in the backyard. He has no idea, so he says, that any murders had been. Even though both Abby and Andrew were dead by now. Yes, and had been. Okay, yeah. And there were people at the house okay. too. This dude is But he's clueless. milling about in the backyard. He picks and eats a couple of pears, and he's only informed of the murders when he enters the house. Who just, like, eats pears? <laughs> Apparently pears are, like, a big thing around the Lizzie Borden house. I don't know why. You know what else is? What? Mutton. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Um, So meanwhile, inside the house, Alice Russell notes to investigators that Lizzie has changed from a blue dress to a white and pink dress. Costume change. I like it. What do you think that she would change to like a black dress though? You would think so. Maybe for morning. Yeah. But Lizzie is not a fan of morning attire. And I'll tell you why. Okay. That's not a very good friend thing to do. Yeah, but also, yeah, I, I wonder why she felt it. Because I'm sure, like, right away, the suspicion wasn't, like, on Lizzie, like, in the, in the first no, couple of minutes. No, she was not even considered a suspect for the first few days. Okay, so then it's funny that her friend was like, hey, did you notice Lizzie changed her outfit? The yeah. investigators were probably like, okay, <laughs> who are you again? investigators was probably a cute guy, and she was trying to snatch him up. You yeah, know what I'm like, saying? Trying to start a conversation Spencer with no him. more. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame her? No. But investigators did find two small blood spots on Lizzie, one on her underskirt and one on her shoe. Okay. And she claimed it was from a flea bite, which is a euphemism for being on your period. 
I cannot say I've ever heard that euphemism. I know. <laughs> that is so, so weird. She also blamed her period for a bucket of bloody rags in the basement. And since men at this time were so squeamish about such womanly things, yes. it was never investigated. Okay, if that if she made that up, that's a very, that was smart of her, isn't it? Very savvy. A, yeah, a bucket of bloody rags, and also the two small spots. The fact that it was on her shoe and her underskirt, like that's not that doesn't line up with it being a, a flea bite, as she would say. No. Speaking from personal experience, <laughs> I don't think it would be easy to get blood there on your shoe. Yeah, <laughs> much less a speck. Anyway, so weird. <laughs> So someone named uh, John Fleet, he was a deputy, interrogated Lizzie. And she maintained the entire time, like, one thing that was constant in her story was that she believed it to be impossible for either John or Bridget to have committed the murders. Okay. But every time he was like, so your mother and father, she would be like, Abby's not my mother, she's my stepmother. Okay. Which, like... Girl, Girl, just let it slide. We've got other things She's going on. She's literally just died. She literally She's just been got brutally murdered. murdered. Um, Emma was still away at the time okay. of the murders, and she arrived home around 6 p.m. Emma's like the definition of like a side character. Yes, correct. <laughs> she doesn't get any more main character as the story goes on okay. either. It's funny because Emma was notified of her parents' death, so she didn't get on the first train home. She got on the fourth train home. After finding out? After finding out that her parents had been bludgeoned to death with an axe. Why? Okay, that's bizarre. She's just staying and enjoying the day in Fairhaven with her friends, I guess. Girl. That's a little suspicious That to is me very too. suspicious. Um, fourth train? The fourth Come train. Come on. I know. It's horrible. And it's not like she had to pack or anything. She hadn't been there for that yeah, many days. I'm sure and she plus, wasn't. If my parents had just gotten brutally murdered... Yeah, she was like, oh, let me just stay and enjoy the rest of the day, though. I'm going to make it a point to get on the first train possible. Yeah, that is so weird. So that evening, Bridget goes to stay with Dr. Bowen's maid. Lizzie, Emma, and John all remain at the house. What? Do they sleep there? Yes. That's so weird. I know. That is so weird. Don't you think, like, Lizzie, if you were Lizzie, wouldn't you have gone to, like, stay with Alice or, like, literally anyone else? Yeah. That's terrifying. It's yeah, that's so it's creepy. Very weird. Investigators made a note that they saw Lizzie and Alice go into the basement with a slop pail, and then investigators also saw Lizzie later that night bent over the sink in the basement. Okay. Alice later testified that Lizzie had burned a paint-covered dress after the murders, and Lizzie was mad that Alice let her burn the dress after Alice and Emma both told her it was a dumb idea. And it's actually confirmed that it was covered in paint. Okay. It's just like a weird thing that they would... It, so at, so Lizzie was mad that that her sister and her friend like didn't do more to stop her from burning it? Yes. Okay. Weird. It's just weird that they would have burned this dress in a household where Andrew was such, so frugal because typically they probably would have like cut it up into rags or something. Wait, but also... This is the same night, this is the night that Andrew had been murdered, right? Yes. This so is why, on the same day. Why are they, wouldn't you think that they would have other things, like, like funeral preparations? Like, why are they burning a dress with paint on it? I wish I could tell you. Weird. That's very odd. 
But this kind of brings us to the end of the history that occurred in the house, but I'm not going to leave you on a cliffhanger. So I'll give you a little bit of a less detailed account of the trial and then Lizzie's life after the murders. All right, let's do it. So Lizzie was arrested a week after the murders on August 11th, 1892. She was held in a women's jail in Taunton, Massachusetts, because there was no women's jail in Fall River. Because women can do no wrong, as we all know. And she was held there for nine months. Okay. On December 1st, Alice testifies about the burning of the dress, and the next day, Lizzie is charged on three accounts. Wow. For the murder of Abby, the murder of John, and then the double homicide. Wow, okay. She pleads not guilty, and her trial is set for June 5th, 1893 so that's why she's in this jail for nine months okay just another weird occurrence of note five days before lizzie's trial so may 31st 1893 okay a fall river farmer named stephen manchester came home to find his 22 year old daughter hacked to death with a hatchet interesting and while lizzie was while lizzie's incarcerated so that threw the town into a tizzy because they were like lizzie's locked up like, so, so you I, can't pin this murder on her, but if it's the same M.O., then perhaps Andrew and Abby were not killed by Lizzie. Yeah, they were okay. victims of a mad outsider. Wow, okay. It was found to be a Portuguese immigrant named Jose Corriera, who had beef with Stephen over severance pay. Okay, so it had nothing to do with... Yeah. With... Okay, got it. It wasn't, like, a serial killer. And xenophobia at the time was running rampant, so everyone was like, an immigrant could have killed the Bordens too, if they could do this much wrong. Okay, yeah, they're probably say like, that it couldn't be this white woman. Like, yeah. look, it was this, it was this immigrant. Okay, I got it. Yes, very small-minded. But yes. um, now getting into the court proceedings, Emma maintained Lizzie's innocence, and the two of them hired the best legal team that money could buy. This is also another point about the case that's not often talked about. Okay. Both of them offered a $5,000 reward for anyone who could arrest and charge the murderer. Both sisters did? Both sisters did. I wonder how much of a, like, in today's cash, how much that would be. Probably a lot. Probably a lot. Wow, okay. But it's also interesting because I feel like there are so many stories of, like, murderers, like, going on the news and being like, oh, like, help me find my wife, help me find this person. yeah. And they're the ones that did it. It's kind of like that thing that... It's like they want attention. I forget what the statistic is, but a good portion of people who phone in murders, it's like a self-report. Okay. Interesting. So I'm not... Okay. But I mean, that is interesting though that they had this huge reward. Yeah. But her legal team was monumental in getting Lizzie acquitted. She probably would not have been acquitted if not for them. Wow. They moved to get a lot of evidence stricken from the record or deemed inadmissible. And this includes a pharmacist's testimony that Lizzie had attempted to buy prussic acid, which is basically liquid cyanide, from Smith's drugstore the day before the murders. Okay. Really? Okay, there's not... Okay, keep going, sorry. (laughs) She claimed it was to kill insects in her sealskin cape, but the pharmacist refused to give it to her without a prescription. She got upset, and she was like, I've bought it before, and he was like, well, I can't sell it to you. Okay. And that might not have been 
the first time that she had tried this because eyewitness accounts were like, oh, I saw her do that a few days ago. Okay. But yeah, I was going to say, I'm kind of impressed that the drugstore clerk was like, no. Or the pharmacist was like, no, you can't. Because I feel like they were so willy-nilly back in those days. Like, yeah. She probably sure, could have slipped him a bribe. Drink this cyanide. Yeah. Yeah. Like cocaine and whatever else was in cough Coca- medicine. Oh, yeah. But like, like yeah, cyanide. Coca-Cola, no. Yeah. <laughs> Her legal team claimed that this was inadmissible because it was a separate occasion that did not occur on the day of the murders, so it was irrelevant. And also, they deemed that the MO was too different. In They're saying that you can't just switch up your method of murdering from poisoning to hatchet bludgeoning. Yeah, but what if the poison didn't work, so then it was like her second plan, like her backup plan or something? I don't know. That's just... It's very interesting that they got it stricken from the record because I feel like it's very relevant, but whatever. An interesting note. So the milk supply, which was the suspected source of poisoning by Lizzie and Abby, who they cited to the Alice and the doctor, was tested on the day of the murder and it came back completely clean. Okay. So, So Lizzie and Abby both originally thought that Everyone was getting sick because of the milk, not Someone the Someone was mutton. poisoning the okay. milk. Oh, right. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Um, so, like I said, Lizzie's story kept changing. So, she kept changing the story of where she was, why she was getting the lead. Sometimes she said she needed it for fishing weight. Sometimes she said it to repair a screen. Why she burnt the dress. And Dr. Bowen testified that he had given her a double dose of bromocaffeine, which is similar to morphine, after the event to help with her nerves. So the stories were inadmissible and they're also inadmissible because she was not represented by counsel at this time. Okay. Wow, I didn't know they had those rights back then, honestly. I didn't either. Huh. Um, the legal team also coached Lizzie on how to act in court. She fainted several times upon seeing forensic evidence that was quote unquote no sight for a woman. Okay. Yeah, Example but you can pretend a, to faint. Yes, you can. So she fainted during the opening statements, but they all she also fainted when they brought out the skulls of her father and stepmother. Okay. Which, that I think is warranted. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. that's very fair. <laughs> um, the jury was all old white men because women could not vote and couldn't serve on a jury. Okay. And their thought was, there's no way a woman of their class could commit this gruesome crime. Yeah, like one of their peers could never. Yeah. Okay. So Lizzie, who was supposed to be in mourning like I mentioned before, was not a fan of morning attire, so she would wear skin-tight dresses and bright ribbons and acted, like, super demure and ladylike in court. <laughs> Basically, she played this jury like a fiddle. Okay, yeah. She was trying to seem like, I'm just a little baby. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. Okay, yes, interesting. Correct. Also weird, though, that she wouldn't wear black. Because like, or I guess she maybe, was wearing black, but, but the she bright red, like bright red ribbons. Yes, interesting. Kind of a weird thing. Yeah. Um, Uncle John testified that he hadn't seen Lizzie the day of the murders, but his testimony was really oddly specific, like to a fault. Yes. Okay. So he was able to name the trolley car number that he had ridden on. He was able to name the number on the conductor's hat and the full name of everyone he had come into contact with. That's weird. Okay, so he was a little too prepared. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, interesting. It seems like it had been rehearsed. Okay. Um, but the prosecution was trying their best, and they just were continually blocked by this defense. Okay. It was a spectacle in this courtroom. The closing argument of the prosecution was several hours long, and their 
point that they really hammered home was every time Lizzie was left alone, someone ended up dead. Okay. So yeah, I guess when I'm... Bridget went outside to clean the windows, that's when Abby was murdered. And then um, when Bridget went up to take the nap, that's when Andrew was murdered. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But the, it's very circumstantial though. It but, is. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, they can't find her guilty without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. So the jury deliberated from 3.24 p.m. to 4.32 p.m., which is like a little over an hour. And on June 20th, 1893, Lizzie was declared innocent. And upon hearing this verdict, she openly wept in the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame her. She's probably I mean, so relieved. She got away with I it. wonder if she thought, or if she was stopped from having to spend life in prison for something she didn't commit. Yeah. I'm not saying that I believe that because I don't really, but I think she did it. I don't know if she did it alone though. We'll discuss. We will. There's lots of parallels to the OJ Simpson trial. Huh. Interestingly enough. Yeah. It's more so that there was like a lot of evidence against them and it was seemingly guilty and then they had this like dream team of lawyers. Ah. And then the jury had this, but they couldn't have done it attitude because, you know, it's a celebrity. Yeah. They're starstruck. Interesting. Though that's, I would never think that I would hear OJ Simpson and Lizzie Borden being compared to each other, but if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. <laughs> I think. Okay. Also funny story about the OJ Simpson trial back in college, the room across the hall from us in plain view of like their open door had this huge tapestry that had a picture of the OJ car chase on it, and it said the juice is loose. <laughs> Which is that was the guy's apartment? Yes. Yeah, that sounds... <laughs> what the heck? Every time I think of the OJ Simpson trial, I think of that. Male dorm rooms yeah. have the most unhinged... <laughs> Decorations. Like, it's either that, like, at least it wasn't like a Saturdays or for the boys or whatever. Oh my god. Um... My boyfriend's apartment in college, he had a Viking helmet in it. Like for the Minnesota Vikings or like just no, a Viking No, just helmet, a Viking trademark. helmet that he bought in like this eclectic shop in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Okay. That sounds like him. <laughs> and this like collection of like stolen signs from around campus. Yes, what is that? I don't know. What is that? The I obsession. Think all men have a little Our bit kleptomaniacs. of kleptomaniac. Yeah. Just like Lizzie Borden. Just like Lizzie. Bringing it right around back. <laughs> Full circle. So in the aftermath of the trial, Lizzie and Emma inherited their father's money, of course, and moved to the hill, which is the wealthy area that they always wanted to live in. And Lizzie named their new estate Maplecroft. Okay. Even though she was acquitted, Lizzie was ostracized from society. She was banned from church, bullied by kids. Her house was vandalized. She was like 40 and she was being bullied by kids. <laughs> yes. Girl. But as a result of this, she became a little bit of a recluse. But she was still a philanthropist. And she was very generous, especially to animal charities. Okay. Um, in 1907... Lizzie strikes up a friendship with a famous actress and throws cast parties for her. Emma gets fed up and moves out and never sees Lizzie again. Oh. And it's not really known why she left. It's speculated that it could have been like a possible lesbian relationship between Lizzie and this actress. Okay. Or 
some people think that Lizzie confessed to the murders okay. and that's why Abby or that's oh. why Emma moved out. But they both died in 1927, one week apart. Oh, isn't that wow? Crazy? One week apart. Yes. So Lizzie died on June 1st, and then Emma died on June 8th. Ah, too bad. In those eight day, in those you know, like seven or eight days, Emma didn't like come clean. And, yeah, I, yeah. Un- unless there was nothing to tell. But I, I don't know. Interesting. Unless Emma was also involved. That's true. Yeah. And speaking of like little conspiracies. Okay. Now going into the other suspects, Bridget was never considered. She was shy and her alibi checked out. And if she was involved, she was likely an accomplice. Okay. So she wasn't the actual one to swing the the hatchet. She died in the 1940s. She moved to like Butte, Montana after this whole thing. Okay. And she came down with a fatal case of pneumonia. And as she's on her deathbed, she sends for her friend and she's like, I have to tell you something. But by the time the friend gets there she's already on the mend and she doesn't say anything oh are you kidding me i know Uh. it's so frustrating and the only thing that she would say about lizzie up until her death was that she always liked her okay um interesting that's i think she could have possibly been paid off oh yeah i mean lizzie probably got a ton of money from and she did Yeah. yeah They inherited all of Andrew's wealth, which is interesting because that brings us to our next suspect, which is Sarah Whitehead, who's Abby's half-sister. Oh, yeah, I remember. But because Abby died first, she didn't stand to inherit anything. Had Andrew died first, Andrew and all of his property and his wealth would have transferred into Abby's name. And then if Abby had died anything left in her inheritance would go to Sarah. Okay. Because Abby died first, Andrew's inheritance went entirely to the daughters. Oh, okay. Isn't that interesting? So it's probably not a coincidence that Abby was killed first. Yeah, okay. Well, also the Sarah Whitehead theory like just isn't like convincing to me no me either she didn't have any she didn't really stand to gain anything and also like unless i'm sure she wasn't seen like anywhere around the house yeah no she wasn't next emma was away but she was only 15 miles away so she could have possibly driven back in her little buggy that she owned women could drive apparently (laughs) (laughs) she could have possibly framed lizzie But up until the end, she maintained her innocence and she didn't testify against her. And she even said on the stand that she told Lizzie to burn the dress. Okay. So, and also Lizzie was the more dominant personality. This doesn't really seem like a scheme that Emma would have come up with. Okay, yeah. Like we said, she's kind of like boring. Like, not boring, but she kind of was like a side character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Compared to the colorful personality that is her sister. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the another thought is that it really could have been like a disorganized intruder, but the overkill with the hatchet really makes, makes it, yeah, it unlikely. It wasn't someone random, it no. seems like. My original favorite suspect was Uncle John Morris. But as I went through this case, I think it has... Lizzie had to have had some involvement yeah. in this. There's no I way think. she didn't. But I think that her and John acted in collusion. Ooh, they were in cahoots. Cahoots. Okay. And I think that he was contracted by Lizzie to actually do like the murdering. And then they both kind of stood to benefit from it. 
because Lizzie could have paid him off. Oh. And that's why I kind of think that she also paid off the maid because Bridget's testimony that she had seen Abby in like unbloodied clothes yeah. right after the murder was the only thing that really like was people were like, oh, don't you think that Lizzie would have been covered in yeah. blood? And Bridget was like, well, I saw her and she wasn't covered in blood. And she was the only one who really had any firsthand experience with it. Correct. So, I mean, if you think about it, like if you're inheriting $10 million, like I'm sure she'd be more than happy to pay off a couple of people Absolutely. and then still have millions of dollars left. To live on the hill. That's what yeah. she always wanted to do. That freaking hill. Yeah. Um, there's another theory that a disturbed and illegitimate son of Andrew Borden named William Borden killed them. And that would have been done with Lizzie's knowledge and he would have done it to avoid being written out of the will. Okay. Um, another theory (laughs) comes from a maid that had cared for Lizzie Borden later in her life named Ruby Cameron. Okay. And she claims that before Lizzie died, she mentioned a boyfriend that her parents did not approve of and blamed him for the murders. Okay. I mean, and maybe she covered for him at the time or something. Maybe. You would think uh, we would know more, a little more about the boyfriend. You would think so, right? I don't know. So I don't know what to think of it, but obviously this is an extremely popular case. And that being said, she does make a lot of cameos in pop culture references, Obviously, like we said, there's that folk rhyme that people used to jump rope to. There was a Broadway musical, ballet, and opera created about her. (laughs) There was an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents based around her. Wow. Two films made for television, The Legend of Lizzie Borden and Lizzie Borden Took an Axe. There's an episode of Supernatural. She appears on an episode of The Simpsons. And then she appears in a book by my favorite author, Agatha Christie, Sleeping Murder, in wow. which she references the Lizzie Borden case. Imagine if she didn't do this and, like, she's... <laughs> I would feel so I bad. Know, I know, I know. Like, she's been, in, she's been in the freaking Simpsons. Like, oh, God, I, I do feel bad if she didn't do it. Yeah, me too. Um, so what do you think? I told you my theory. I'm going to have to say... My number one theory is the same as yours. I do think that, I think that Lizzie had to have been in cahoots with Uncle John. Like, yeah. Because, like you were saying before, like, I don't think there's a way that one person could have done it and ha- it have gone as, I guess, smoothly, for lack yeah. of a better word, as it did. Like, there had to have been someone else involved and someone covering for another person. And someone had to have witnessed them. Yeah. And so I, I also think that the maid, I think that Bridget was probably also maybe either paid off or in on it, just like you said. Yeah. There was also another eyewitness that came forward during the trial okay. that said that he had seen Lizzie leaving the barn at like 11.03 a.m. Which, okay, like, which is like right after Andrew was right killed. That's right at the time that Andrew was killed. Interesting. So that's implying that she was, what, leaving the barn to go in and kill her dad? No. Or she was leaving, she was... They placed her outside the house to prove that she couldn't do it. Yes. Okay. So I think she could have possibly paid off him as well. Just a little sum to just be like, just say I didn't do it. You know? Interesting. And then also the, um, the, the boyfriend one, I I had never heard that theory, but I I hadn't either. That one's more likely to me than like the sister of Abby or anything like that. Yeah. 
Or even Emma doing it. Like, yeah. I, I kind of think that the falling out between those two probably had something to do with the murders. Absolutely. I think, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it, I think it had to have been because the fact that she didn't talk to her for the rest of her life is weird. It's strange. And it's like, there's no way. I really don't think that like she would have never talked to her for the rest of her life because of like the supposed lesbian relationship between Lizzie and that actress. But now that you have the background behind the tragedy that occurred in this house, it's really no wonder that this place is haunted. So Sam, do you want to take us into some of the hauntings that occur in the infamous Lizzie Borden house? Yes, let's get into the hauntings of the Lizzie Borden house. So unsurprisingly, like the site of so many other tragedies before this, the Lizzie Borden house has been transformed into a bed and breakfast. No way. Yeah, once again. We didn't even do that on purpose. I know. It's our third episode, and this is our second bed and breakfast. So (laughs) pretty interesting. Um, Obviously, the main allure of the house is that you get to stay in the actual house where the murders took place. This isn't like a recreated house or anything. This is the actual house where Andrew and Abby were murdered all those years ago. Spooky. Very spooky. Very morbid. Um, But you can stay in one of multiple rooms or suites. They've got a couple to choose from. Hit me with them. All right. The first is the Lizzie and Emma suite. It's a two-room suite on the second floor. And when Emma and Lizzie actually resided in the house, these were the rooms that they slept in. Ooh. I know. So it shares a bathroom with the John V. Morse room, which is the room where Abby Borden was murdered. Okay. So it's the original guest room? Yes. The John V. Morse room is the original guest room. So the Morse room is also known as the murder room for obvious reasons. (laughs) Uh, This is where Abby was found murdered, just like I said. And it was also the room that Lizzie and Emma's uncle had slept in the night before. So that's how it got its name. Right. Then there's the Andrew and Abby suite, which is another two-room suite on the second floor. One room was Andrew and Abby Borden's bedroom. And then the other room was Abby Borden's sewing room. Ooh. She had a room just for sewing? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, listen, he was frugal, but I guess for his woman, he... Didn't mind shelling out. Yeah, exactly. Her sewing room. How fun. (laughs) Um, And then also there was a room called the Bridget Sullivan room, which is up in the attic, which is where Bridget, the maid, slept. Right. So my question for you and for anyone listening is, if you were to stay at the Lizzie Borden house, which room or suite would you choose to stay in? I think... I'm going to have to go the Morse room just oh. because I feel like if we're making the trip up to Fall River, go hard or go home, you that, know? Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. See, I was going to say I would go in the, I would go in the Bridget Sullivan room because for some reason that one probably has the least negative energy to me. I don't know. That's just me. I see where you're coming from. I also would like to stay in that room just for the opportunity to like recreate some of the occurrences that had gone on. So I'd like to stay in that room and see if I could hear any of the goings on of the downstairs house, just to see if it's possible that she really did sleep through those murders. Run some experiments. Exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do some see thumping hear- down there. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. So you guys let us know which one you would stay in. I'm actually very curious. Also, another fun fact about the Lizzie Borden house, you can actually have your wedding here. Hmm... Interesting, right? That's really cool. It's not for me. It's, yeah. It's not, I would like to attend a wedding there. I would love to attend a wedding there. But I would not want to host a wedding there. And people can actually have the wedding in the house. Like, it's not like they just have it in the yard. They have it literally in the house. That's actually 
wild. And apparently it's pretty popular. The website said that it fills up pretty quickly every year. So that, that doesn't shock me just because I feel like the wedding, your wedding is typically one of the biggest days of your life. So if you're already going for a shock factor, why not go all the way? Why not do this? Yeah. yeah. So just another fun little tidbit. So the Lizzie Borden house also has all the furnishings exactly where they were when the murder happened. Whoa. So even though it's not like the exact same couch or the exact same chair, it's recreated as painstakingly accurate as possible. And then it's put in the exact spot where its counterpart was um, however many years ago when Andrew and Abby were killed. That's really cool. Yeah, so it's it's really like you've been transported through time. Yeah, you're like stepping back to 1892. Yeah. That's wild. Really cool, right? And mm-hmm. also, um, all the decor has been duplicated super accurately, and there's a bunch of little mementos. Pretty cool, right? Yes. So into the actual hauntings of the house, though, people claim that Lizzie, Andrew, and Abigail are the three spirits that haunt the house, which is not surprising because it's the two murder victims and then the alleged murderer or murderess, whatever. Uh, Guests have experienced a couple of different things. One of the most common is people will sometimes see a figure moving about the rooms. Some people feel their limbs or their ears being pulled on. The ear pulling seems pretty playful to Yeah, me. right? It doesn't sound that malevolent. Does, it's not, it's like, it doesn't seem it's malicious. It's almost like flirty or something. Hmm. Um, there's a woman in a nightgown who's often seen in the Andrew and Abby suite, going back to those figures moving about the rooms, and a lot of people assume that this is Abby. Ooh, I was going to ask you if it was Abby or Lizzie. It's thought to be Abby, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. Okay. But there are also reports of doors opening on their own and furniture moving on its own. Ooh. Yeah, nothing crazy. Like, nothing's getting, like, thrown across the room, like, like in the Farnsworth house. Okay. But, but people do report. No angry Walters yes, here. Yes, exactly. No angry Walters here. No, no, no. Just an angry Lizzie. Um, and then I, I feel like that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> and then also in the Bridget room, which is the maid's room, like I said, apparently one time a guest was staying in there, and there was, like, a wind-up cat toy on the chest, and it started to play on its own. Yeah, which is not like it was even like electronic. It's like no. it physically had to be had wound, to be wound up. up. Oh god. Yeah, so that's creepy. Right? I would. Yeah, yeah I'd that be makes out of there. Me, that makes me not want to stay in the Bridget room actually. So never mind. <laughs> Maybe revise your original <laughs> answer. So, a quick note about the Lizzie Borden house. Lizzie did not continue to live there after the murders for obvious reasons. She wanted to get away and not be associated with the murders anymore. Mm-hmm. She actually moved to a mansion that she called Maplecroft Mansion. And she lived there for 35 years until her death. Oh. So she was there for a while. And a lot of people believe that that is actually where her spirit stays. Not in the Lizzie Borden house, but in Maplecroft Mansion. Which makes sense because, I mean... She obviously didn't seem to be very happy in her original house. Whether she killed her parents or not, she obviously, yeah. she was an outcast. She was a spinster. Yeah, she um, didn't like staying in that home, which she made very well known yes. to the people in the town too. But at the same time, then it would make more sense to me that she would haunt that house because, the one down on 2nd Street, because ghosts are like energy residual energy left over from someone's life and this house seems like it would house 
a lot more energy than Maplecroft, where she lived pe- somewhat peacefully until the end of her life. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I guess I could. May- I mean, maybe she can go to both. Do you think she can like transfer herself yeah. to both houses? Yeah, I don't depending think spirits. I don't think spirits are confined to okay. one place. Then yeah, I would say let's go with. She's seen at both. People, yeah. people have seen her at both. So. Which would make sense. Yeah. That's like her vacation house. Exactly. Yeah. Depending on her mood, which one she goes to. She's a homeowner. So back to the Lizzie Borden house. It's open from 10 to 3 every single day of the year besides Christmas and Thanksgiving. Jeez. Yeah, right? It's, it's impressive. They're dedicated. They're driven. And the place really knows how to kind of walk the line between being respectful and, like, you know, remembering that people did die there mm-hmm. and also being really funny. Like, they're so, <laughs> like, tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing, but they do it in a way that's, like, not tasteless. Okay. Like, it's, cla- okay. it's, it's still – it's classy. So they definitely have a sense of humor about the whole thing. They don't try to take themselves too seriously. That's kind of nice. It is, yeah, because it makes it a little bit less, like, gloomy. Yes, I was going to say, it takes some of, like, the melancholiness out of the whole experience. Exactly. So, for example, I found this list of rules that the guests at the bed and breakfast have to adhere to. Okay. So some of them are typical, saying things like, oh, only children under 11 are allowed for overnight stays. Some of them say quiet time begins at 11 p.m. But then there is one that was cracking me up. It says, no alcohol is permitted on the property. We have already had two fatal head injuries in the home. Oh. <laughs> Which I, I thought was so funny. It's just like on their official website. And I was like, that is so That's funny. actually hilarious. It is, right? So That I, makes me want to go even more. Right, yeah. Because it, yeah. it made me feel like more comfortable. I was like, oh, oh okay. yeah. Like they're, yeah. So they're pretty cool um and check out their website if you want to learn more about the actual bed and breakfast itself because it does seem really really fun um if we get four listeners if we get four streams no let's think bigger if we get seven streams (laughs) we'll go to the lizzie borden house i don't know you guys only time will tell and then there's another funny rule just really quickly that they put in their rule book for the bed and breakfast they say and i quote there is no smoking or vaporizing in the house if we see you smoking we are going to assume you are on fire and take the act and take the appropriate action (laughs) (laughs) so they're pretty funny they're silly little people over there and i like them um i wouldn't be friends with whoever wrote these rules yeah whoever their like marketing person is is genius yeah they know they know what's up they get it (laughs) So going back to the whole ghost aspect of it all, because this is East Coast Haunts, there is a series on the Travel Channel called Kindred Spirits, and it's hosted by Amy Bruni and Adam Berry. So they went to go investigate Maplecroft, which again is the mansion that Lizzie lived in after she was acquitted Mm -hmm. until her death. So the home was getting ready to be opened up to the public because the people who owned the Lizzie Borden house then also bought the Maplecroft house, I believe. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, okay. so they were getting it ready to be open to the public for tours and for sightseeing and stuff like that. And apparently there had been a huge uptick in paranormal activity ever since it was announced that the Maplecroft mansion was going to be open to the public. So it Ooh. seems like Lizzie or whoever was in there was not happy about yeah. it. So apparently there had been a lot of uh, disembodied laughter. Mm. Yeah, there was a woman's voice that people kept hearing when they were all alone. Mm. Um, And people kept feeling like they were being touched, even though no one was there. (laughs) So they brought in this psychic named Chip Coffee, Cofe, I'm not sure, (laughs) Cofefe. And Chip said that Lizzie was unhappy and that she 
didn't want people to be there and that she didn't want to discuss the murders with anybody in any capacity. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, she's setting boundaries. So they come back later with a slightly different approach. And I'm actually going to have you and I read the exchange between Adam and Lizzie. And just a side note, they call Lizzie Lizbeth because she changed her name to Lizbeth after she was acquitted in the trial. Again, I guess to try to get away from the scandal of it all. I don't know why she changed her name to... Something that's almost the exact same thing. Yeah, there's like two letters missing, but whatever. But, you um, know. Go off Elizabeth, I guess. So I'm going to read the part of Adam, who is one of the ghost hunters. And I want you, MK, to read Lizbeth, what she allegedly said. They were using one of those ghost boxes, which I think oh, is one yeah. of those radio. It scans the frequencies yeah, of the yeah, radio. Yeah, yeah, like, okay. yeah. Like, you can say stuff. Interesting. So I'm going to read the part of Adam, the ghost hunter, and you're going to read Lizzie. With pleasure. What what voice should I do for Lizzie? Actually, I'm going to surprise How you. do you think Lizzie spelled? <laughs> I'm going to surprise you. Actor's choice. All right. So Adam says, you're going to have a lot of people coming in here and trying to talk to you. And most of these people are going to try to talk about... Directly. This is in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of like the Southern Belle vibe you're going for. Okay. So she said directly. And then Adam says, yes, they're going to talk to you directly. I'm lost. The people that own this house now also own the house. Don't say anything. It's not me. People are going to ask you about what happened on 2nd Street. We're trying to warn you and let you know to see if that's okay with you. Please talk to them. Are you there? So you're saying it's okay for people to come back and talk to you about your past? Come back. What would you like to talk about? And then at that point, Amy felt someone walking through the room that she was in upstairs, but no one was to be seen. So then Adam asks, do you miss someone, Lisbeth, from your past? You get used to it. I'm upset. What are you upset about? Stop. Stop it. Alone. I tried. So scene. that was our beautiful, wonderful <laughs> Dolly Parton, <laughs> Paula Deen vibe, Lisbeth. Um, but no, it's super weird because, I mean, when I, if you've ever watched like BuzzFeed Unsolved or something, when they use like the... The, the ghost boxes. I've never heard them like be able to get out these like full sentences. Yeah, it's usually Brian Vergara <laughs> stretching a little bit to make that, <laughs> to make it sound yeah. like something. And this is all like a transcript, so I didn't get to listen to the actual episode or anything. I couldn't find it, so who knows how accurate this is, but it's it's pretty interesting, right? It is interesting, and it's very haunting her last words, stop, stop it alone, I tried. I know! Because that... That makes me think that, that she was like falsely accused or something. Yeah. She's just like tired and giving up, which is sad if that is yeah. the case. Um, Again, if she did not commit these murders, then she, I what then she is like a the, horrible life. Yeah, your parents really. get murdered. You you get blamed for it. How, you have to go through the traumatic trial. You get your parents' skin and skulls shown to you. And then your legacy for the next... You finally get acquitted, and then you're ostracized from society. And you will never... And yeah, now Never people... live that down. It's over 130 years later, and people still talking about it. Like us. Yeah. Are we part sorry, of the problem? Sorry, Lizbeth. Lizbeth, if you didn't do it, I'm sorry. But if you did do it... Well, rip. Karma's a bitch. Yeah. So finally, I just kind of want to wrap up with some more TripAdvisor reviews. Yes, I love these. <laughs> so these were slightly harder to find than they were for the Farnsworth house. And that's because 
the Lucy Borden house, yes, it's a bed and breakfast, but it also has a bunch of tours going on, like, all throughout the day. Okay. So the majority of the reviews are for the tours. Gotcha. But I did find a couple of people who had some spooky paranormal experiences mm. while they stayed at the house. Lucky so them. I know, right? Yeah, so the person who we're going to start with said, quote, we were the only other people in the house and heard doorknobs turning and it felt like we were being watched. Which I know that's not like crazy. It's not like we're at the Farnsworth house again where like they're throwing yeah, chairs across the room. This, I would be okay with having this sort of paranormal encounter. Yes. I don't need to see a full-bodied apparition, at least not yet. Yeah. But if I went to the Lizzie Borden house and I saw doorknobs turning and I just had like a freaky cool. feeling... That's a fun story yeah. to tell. I'd be fine with that. Yes. Yeah. Well, then maybe this is the place for I would us. not be traumatized by that. I would be a little traumatized, but not very traumatized. Anyway, so our second review says, and this one is a little more freaky. Mm. As our tour went upstairs to the room Mrs. Borden was found dead in, Sue started talking and I became ill. And I guess Sue is their tour guide. Yeah, makes sense. I went out of the room. I was pale and started to cry. I had the sensation to cry my eyes out. After being in the hallway for a few minutes, I started to feel better. I know that Mrs. Borden was there and wanted someone to feel her pain. We then visited the graves I needed to pay respects to Miss Borden and her family. That review makes me sad. I know. Like, obviously, it's, it's not even, like, spooky. It's just sad. Because as interesting as this case is to talk about and, you know, speculate who the murderer is, it's easy to kind of forget the fact that these were two people that had a family and they were brutally ki- i mean yeah, yeah. and it, it never no one ever figured it no they weren't really brought to justice or avenged or anything yeah. because because it's still technically unsolved yeah yeah they had a family they had hobbies they had things they like to do and they were both killed like in the place that a successful business yeah they had like 12 a successful happy marriage that, as as far as it seems yeah yeah and it's like the place where they're supposed to feel safe is where they were hatcheted, if that's a word, to death. It's, it's sad. It is sad. Like, it's sensational and it's crazy, but it's really sad. So um, I thought that was really nice that this person went to oh. the graves and, like, paid their respects. On a lighter note, me an empath sensing that something bad happened yeah, in this house. Yeah, I know. I like how she's like, I think Mrs. Borden wanted me to know that she died here. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah that's another one and then the third one i want to finish with is someone said the first night footsteps were in my bathroom on the hardwood floor it was the middle of the night when the whole house was quiet and i was awake at this point the sound went on for what seemed like forever second night i woke up and and saw what appeared to be mrs abby borden in my friend's room which was diagonal to mine I stared and was frozen solid. She appeared as if she were tidying up the room or putting things away. That particular room used to be her dressing room at one point, which I think they probably mean the sewing room. But Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe it doubled. Yeah, exactly. Multi-purpose room. Everyone had trouble being in the attic during the tour. I had a dreary feeling, but not like theirs. No one liked going up there. So it seems like Mrs. Borden is probably the most active spirit in this house. Would you agree? yeah. I mean, in I, I kind of feel like she was done the dirtiest. She married into this family and then was what possibly yeah. killed by her stepdaughter. stepdaughter. Yeah, 
Yeah. When it seems like she really didn't do because anything. she really didn't do anything wrong. Like <laughs> her sister living. got like sick, and then her husband was like, "Oh well, she can live in one of my rental properties." And then the two daughters were like, "Go, like, Dad." <laughs> yeah, honestly, what yeah. About us? Abby was like the it, most. It seems like she was like the most innocent party out of everyone. And apparently, she could be like a little bit of a handful, but like, who listen, she was an yeah. older woman. She had spent her entire life like toiling away. She probably yeah. had like thirty thousand kids. Like, so. <laughs> Like, if she was going to be a little cranky, it's fine. So, I don't know. I honestly, if I were, if I was going to go to this house and see someone, I, I would be fine seeing Mrs. Borden. Yeah, I'd vibe with that. As um, long as her, like, as long as she looked like how she did in life. Yeah, I don't want to see a hacked version. Yeah. Which, speaking of, we are going to post the crime scene photos on Instagram, and we'll post a trigger warning in the comments. Trigger the warning. Caption. But, because they they are a little bit gruesome. But again, they're like 19th century photos, so it is a little bit grainy and hard yeah. to see. If you it's squint. not too disturbing, but again, we will be putting some a warning in the caption. Not trying to get canceled, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> so, that pretty much wraps it up for our episode on the Lizzie Borden house. Ooh, I liked this episode. Yeah, it was super interesting. I have to say, like, I did know the case-ish. Like, I knew that she was acquitted, and I knew that a lot of people still think she did it. But, I mean, I don't know. It, it was interesting, and you proposed some theories that I am starting to kind of believe a little bit. I went down a rabbit hole with this research. As you can tell by the duration of this podcast, it's like <laughs> almost double what our other ones usually are. I really was not planning on going that in depth into research, but then I read this book and I went and I watched some articles and I listened to some other podcasts on the theory. And I don't know. I just, I was so enthralled by this case. You couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a crazy case and we could spend like five hours talking about the details, but I think you did a great job of covering the overall craziness that is the lizzie borden why thank you and you made me really want to visit so again fingers crossed for seven listeners guys we can do it and on a more serious note we do want to thank everyone that has listened to our podcast so far we actually just reached over a hundred listeners tonight 101 baby so that's really exciting and we're gonna keep putting episodes out there so keep listening keep recommending us keep following us on social media And until next time, we're just two ghouls creeping it real. Bye.